Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. <laughs> I'm Carla Nappi, and this is New Books in East Asian Studies. Welcome and thanks for joining us today. I just finished talking with Miriam Kingsburg about her really exciting new book, Moral Nation, Modern Japan and Narcotics in Global History. This came out with the University of California Press in 2015, so uh, just recently. Now, the book looks at the intersection between a history of narcotics and drug use and a history of ideas of civilization, society, empire, and the institutions institutions and the kinds of texts and documents and practices through which and from which these different social categories um, and ways of being a society emerged from the late 19th century through the late 20th century. It's a quite extensive interview, so I'll keep this relatively brief because I'd much rather you listen to Miriam talk about the book. She's quite eloquent and articulate about it. Um, but I will say that it's it was particularly exciting for me to read this book in part because, um, among many other things, not only is it based on really, really careful, very engaged, very, very precise archival research into the kinds of documents that produce not just a, a clean narrative, but also some really useful data that brings together our understanding of the history of demography um, and sort of demographic trends with history, cultural, social, political. It's a story as well that very clearly speaks to multiple disciplines. And so um, historians of science and medicine in particular, who may not otherwise um, imagine themselves reading a book about Japan or about, um, uh, really in this context, it's kind of a transnational history that includes Japan, China, and Korea, might want to pay special attention to um, at least some of the chapters in the book, because there's a really clear story about the history of science and medicine and the laboratory as a sort of important space for and discourses of the histories of narcotics and the nation in modern Japan. So it's a really great book. It was um, really wonderful talking with Miriam about it. I hope you have a chance to read the book. I highly recommend it, and I hope you enjoy our conversation. I'm here today to talk with Miriam Kingsburg about her new book, and a great, great new book it is, Moral Nation, Modern Japan and Narcotics in Global History. Welcome to New Books in East Asian Studies, Miriam, and thanks very, 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 very much for making time to talk with me today. I learned so much about the book. I love the book, and I'm really grateful that you're willing to take time to talk about it. So welcome. Thank you so much. I'm really excited to be here. So, Marianne, can you start us off, as is traditional for the channel, um, by saying just a little bit about what brought you to the field, and specifically, how did you come to work on modern Japanese history? Sure. Um, well, I grew up in Japan, actually. Uh, my family moved there when I was eight years old. My dad works in finance, uh, and we lived there until I was 16. So my relationship with Japan and interest really began at a very early and formative time. But then when I went to college, I studied history. Uh, and it, um, in the course of writing my senior thesis, I realized how much I loved the research process and wanted to make a career out of it. So when I was applying to grad school, I looked to merge my interest in, in a career that somehow took me back to Asia with with an interest in, in history. And so I ended up at Berkeley um, and I studied modern Japanese history. So the book that we're talking about today explores the intersection between narcotic history, and we'll talk a whole lot more about what that means, and the emergence of a kind of moral crusade or a spike in the concern for the welfare of society that was prompted by a perceived crisis in collective values in the 19th and 20th century in Japan, and in fact, a series of three um, emergent crises, and we'll talk about all of those, I'm sure, over the course of our conversation. So can you talk a little bit about how you come to work came to work on this particular topic what brought you to narcotic history in the context of modern japan 
actually, it was entirely by chance. Um, when I started graduate school, I also began learning Chinese uh, just to have a second Asian language. And so this really focused my interest on China and particularly Sino-Japanese relations. My original intention for my dissertation was to write an urban history of Dairen, the city of Dalian, uh, in contemporary PRC. And I wanted to do this sort of as an exploration of Japan's longest held possession on the Asian mainland, which was also a laboratory for various different kinds of modernity. Um, I thought I might focus on urban planning and architecture. But in the course of researching that project, um, I came across information that Dayan also, during the 1920s and early 1930s, was the point of greatest narcotic consumption in the world and second highest volume of trafficking. And that seemed like a fact worth following up on, and <laughs> it completely diverted me in the end. That totally blew my mind, um, by the way. So uh, listeners should know, we, we were talking a little bit before this, and um, I mentioned that I teach uh, global history of drugs um, occasionally at UBC, and reading this completely transformed how I'm going to be doing that um, and how I think about this whole topic. So really, I think this is a book that is going to be really transformative, both for um, people who work on Sino-Japanese history, on Japanese history, on Chinese history, but also for people interested more broadly in the history of medicine and drugs. I mean, just totally mind-blowing in terms of the, the data and the archival material that you're digging up here and its relation to a larger global story. So, oh, wow. Thank you. <laughs> you're very kind. <laughs> no, it's, it's true. It's true. So, Miriam, um, this did start off as a dissertation. Is that right? Yes. Okay. So can you talk a little bit about that transition um, and the transformation from this project in the form of a dissertation to the book that we're um, talking about today? Were there any major transformations in terms of either the shape of the project, um, the narrative, and or the kinds of arguments um, that you were making from one form to another? I think it would be fair to say that the the products are very, very different. Um, I'd be surprised if there was even one sentence that survived intact in the transition from the dissertation to the book. For the dissertation, I was very much focused on Dayden, and I was particularly inclined to write the 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 work as a an, an anatomy of an urban drug economy. Um, so I structured it around collective actors, uh, drug users. I didn't call them moral entrepreneurs at the time, but that's who they eventually became, um, and doctors and also merchants, which wasn't a term that I used until the manuscript stage either. Um, but my interest was really in showing how this played out as both a form of imperial legitimization and social control. So that was really where the dissertation was, and it was very much focused on, on Diane and the Guangdong Lease territory. But for the book, what I wanted to do was something a little bit more broad and uh, deep as well. So I felt that the story was larger than what I had done in the dissertation. Um, so the, the book is really more um, a story from the 1850s to the 1950s. Um, and geographically, the scope is wider. Um, I did additional research in Taiwan and Korea and um, in other archives in China and Japan as well. And um, I also introduced more of a chronological structure to it. Uh, initially, I resisted that, actually, because I thought that it was more important to highlight actor agency or collective actor agency in the dissertation. But as I became more attentive to chronology, I started noticing these waves, these um, successive crises, and that ultimately became a really important theme um, and organizing factor in the book. So that was another major change. And then the, the, the argument itself is different. Um, the language of moral crusade and moral panic um, and uh, the idea of the moral entrepreneur as, as a social agent and um, all of uh, sort of the, the overarching theme that um, narcotics were a platform for Japan to enter this universal conversation about what constitutes legitimacy, political legitimacy, and nations and empires. So it was a lot of work to revise. <laughs> 
Well, the product is fabulous. And you've, you've already mentioned an important part of that product, which is this idea of moral entrepreneurs. So that's probably, I think, a good place to start to bring us into um, the text itself and the, the materiality of the text itself. So this category of moral entrepreneurs recurs throughout the book, and you introduce it right at the very beginning. You mentioned that moral entrepreneurs were really at the forefront of these moral crusades and these sort of moral crises um, that give the book its narrative arc. So let's start off, um, if you wouldn't mind, by talking a little bit about that category. Who are moral entrepreneurs and what does that um, category of actor mean for you in the context of this study? Sure. Um, well, the it's a very evolving category. Um, basically, moral entrepreneurs is, is a concept that I borrowed from sociology, um, and they foment moral panic or moral crisis. Um, this idea that there's disproportionate concern allocated to a social phenomenon that may or may not be essentially problematic. Um, and so the moral entrepreneurs that I look at, uh, there are three different periods during which they come to the forefront. And for them, the narcotic crisis is, is really an opportunity to gain social influence and social power, political power as well. Um, and so during the 1890s, the first moral crisis that I deal with, um, it's very much limited to elites. It's, it's an elite conversation about drugs um, and a way of formulating a, a national and imperial identity for Japan through these um, very literate, very educated elites who uh, see in drugs a way of gaining social power over society. And then in the second moral panic, a moral crisis, sorry, um, what we see is, is um, the emergence of a mass society or um, a middle class even that um, allows greater participation in this idea of moral entrepreneurship. So um, they're much wider social and professional categories. Um, and I describe them as cultural producers and merchants and law enforcement and doctors and scientific researchers um, during this time. And then finally, during the 1950s, when moral panic over drugs comes home to Japan, um, it's, it's very much a mass society phenomenon. Um, and I um, talk about how the ordinary people came to participate in this crisis, um, in resolving the crisis of methamphetamine as a means of, of self-empowerment and uh, restoring agency to society after this perception that there was none during the wartime era. Great. Thank you so much. That actually really beautifully sets out the narrative arc for our conversation as well. So over the course of the story, as you've mentioned already, um, really, I think, very articulately and much more articulately than I could. So this is great. Um, the nation of Japan experiences three crises of political legitimacy. And each of these triggers, um, as you've already mentioned, a kind of moral crusade against narcotics. So we're going to look at these in turn, and as, as does the book. The Sino-Japanese War of 1894 and 1895 provokes this first episode and the first um, major moral crisis. In this context, Japan's victory changes its perceived place in the more kind of global hierarchy of states. And opium in this context really, really interestingly becomes a symbolic marker of difference between Japan and the other. And what constitutes that other kind of changes a little bit over the story and it's more multiple um, than listeners might Im immediately think. So in this context, um, and, and here's where I'm going to sort of open this up and ask you to, to speak a little bit to some of the really fascinating elements of the narrative that come up as you're talking about this first crisis. Um, in this context, moral entrepreneurs, and we've already talked about um, who those were, those are pr predominantly elites in this um, first uh, context, they're using abstinence from opium to kind of talk through, to signify, and to help create an idea of the civilization of the Japanese nation. So can you maybe start us off um, in this part of the story by talking a little bit about that, this connection between discourses of civilization, of na nationhood, and the ways that opium discourse and abstinence in particular um, kind of help formulate this and what the relationship between civilization and opium basically is in this context? Sure. Um, so in, in the way I've interpreted it, basically opium is associated with 
with China um, in the Western mindset. And um, this is not to say that opium wasn't strenuously consumed in the West as well. It was, but in China it was smoked, which came to be a practice that was stigmatized as somehow recreational and deviant in contrast to consuming it in laudanum or beverage form as, as a sort of um, a purportedly medical way in Europe and America in the late 19th century. Um, and so the association of China with opium um, and this sort of oriental deviance, I'm using oriental in quotation marks, but this, this perception that China was somehow degenerate was very useful to the Western powers in denying the sovereign legitimacy of China, which was a source of profit for everybody. Um, so when Japan opened up to the Western powers, it was very keen to make sure that opium did not come in. Um, it uh, was able to secure voluntary export restrictions on opium to the home islands. And then this became available as a marker of difference between the strong and legitimate nation state of Japan and the uh, degenerate civilization of China. So then abstinence from opium or alleged abstinence from opium became a way for Japan to identify itself with the Western powers and enter into this conversation on what constituted legitimate sovereignty in nations. Um, and the fact that Japan was able to join this club of great powers gave civilization, um, meaning abstinence, credibility as, as a universal rather than simply Western value. So the... What, it, what I'd like to suggest in this chapter is, is the idea that opium was more than just opium, that it, it wasn't just a, a drug, but it was also a symbolic marker of difference between Japan and China, between China and the West, um, that was, uh, that Japan was able to use to quote unquote leave Asia and enter the West. That's right. And you, and you talk, I think, really interestingly here for those who are interested in the history of science, actually, in the history of social science um, and Darwinism in particular. You also talk in this part of the book um, about the use of the language of social Darwinism to portray opium smoking as a kind of not only the cause of China's defeat, but also a sign of the racial inferiority of China. So that's a really um, interesting part of this story. And you talk, um, as you've mentioned, about Japan sort of leaving Asia and seeking to enter the West. Now, the war itself has also transformed Japan into a formal empire. And you talk about the consequences of this for the larger um, story that the book is telling about the history of narcotics and its imbrication with the history of the nation and the history of morality in that context. The Treaty of Shimonoseki shifted Taiwan from China to Japan. And the, Taiwan becomes, um, as of this point in the story, and continues to be a really, really central part of this history. So can you talk a little bit about this? How You, you describe um, Japan dealing with Taiwan in this early part of the story as it's dealing with um, Taiwan as a colony of drug users. So this is a fascinating um, element of the story. Can you talk a little bit about Taiwan um, as a colony of drug users in this context? How has this become important um, in this part of the story? For sure. Um, so the real Taiwan really triggers the first moral crisis over drugs in, in Meiji Japan. Uh, Japan has successfully identified itself with the value of abstinence um, and portrayed itself as a legitimate nation on, on these terms. But then by taking over the colony of Taiwan, which is also necessary to show power as, as an empire on par with the Western powers... The, the problem becomes that, that Taiwan is actually a colony of opium smokers, um, and that opium smoking is, is quite a prevalent and entrenched and, uh, unstigmatized custom in Taiwan in the late 19th century. Um, so Japan, in taking over this colony, faces a transition from an abstinent nation to an empire of addicts, which, uh, won't fly with the, um, with the prevailing rhetoric of legitimacy, um, that has been used so far. Uh, so the problem becomes how to suppress opium in a way that makes the Taiwanese into Japanese. The Taiwanese were incorporated into the Japanese empire as, as Japanese subjects. They were, um, 
sort of uh, given the same rights and responsibilities under the Meiji Constitution as Japanese subjects in the home islands. Um, but in order to become Japanese, uh, they must also be abstinent from drugs. So the problem becomes how to how to accomplish that and to manage the problem of opium in a way that is not ruinously financially expensive um, and doesn't simply... The problem with, with the empire is that um, there's legitimacy both in difference between Japan and its colonial subjects and the eradication of that difference by anti-opium campaigns. So managing to do both at the same time is also a really important element of how Japan ultimately comes to interact with the problem of narcotics in Taiwan. So you talk about in this part of the book um, this kind of negotiation between arguments for gradual versus immediate and um, kind of more dramatic uh, regimes of prohibition in this context and talk about the emergence of an opium monopoly as well. Can you speak a little bit to that? Because that's also a really fascinating part of the story. Sure. Um, so the... The, and these discourses mobilized a lot of different categories of moral entrepreneurs from all spectrums of, of professional, of professions, uh, just because they cut across so many different categories. The idea was that initially Japan came to Taiwan with the idea that opium had to be suppressed and had, that had to be accomplished as, as quickly as possible, that, that it was an unsustainable habit, that it was contributing to the social Darwinist elimination of the Taiwanese, um, making them unfit for anything, let alone Japanese subjecthood, um, and that uh, it was ruining Japan's image to have a colony of opium smokers. So the idea initially was that opium would be suppressed very strictly. Then um, it also came to the attention of the authorities, and I, I talk primarily about Goto Shinpei, but other actors were involved um, who would probably be familiar to scholars of, of Meiji Japan, like Ishiguro Tadanori, for example. Um, other people came to suggest that there was profit to be had in the opium economy, um, and that if the state took control of it, they could, on the one hand, benefit from the fact that people needed to consume it. And on the other hand, they could gradually cut down consumption by making less available, less opium available in circulation. Um, so I think ultimately this argument proved extremely persuasive because um, the medical establishment and um, the sort of financial interests were both behind it. Um, that this created roles, new roles for medical practitioners to become addiction doctors um, and supply expertise to the state at the same time as it created jobs for opium retailers, um, not just among the Japanese migrants to Taiwan, but also among Taiwanese elites who were then brought on board in the colonization project, co-opted, if you will. And so ultimately gradual suppression prevails as a strategy. What's interesting is that then this um, state opium monopoly that is implemented as the crowning element of gradual suppression is then also brought to the home islands. So I think this is a really nice example of how change in, and innovation in the colonies um, also brings about change in the metropole. Great. Um, thank you so much. Now, by the end of the 20th century, drug regulation in Taiwan, and you've just talked a little bit about um, the complexities of this and the, and the really transformations inherent in that uh, collection of processes, they brought Japan's first moral crusade against narcotics to a close, which brings us to the second moral <laughs> crusade against narcotics and the second kind of part of the book. Between the end of World War I and Japan's defeat in World War II, as you show in the book, we see the most protracted and intense moral crusade, as you put it, against narcotics in Japanese history. And this is a really, really fascinating set of um, case studies that you bring us into in this part of the story. In 1905, Japan establishes a protectorate over Korea and takes control as well over Kwantung leased territory. And so for listeners, when I refer um, later on um, to Kwantung leased territory, I'm going to use the acronym KLT um, as 
um, as is done in the book, they establish this in southern Manchuria and they adopt modified versions of the kinds of drug regulation um, processes, the kind of regime they had used in Taiwan in both cases. Within 20 years, as we'll see in the story, Korea emerges as the global capital of morphine and the KLT port city of Dairen, as you have mentioned earlier, and we'll talk a lot more about Dairen. Dairen emerges um, as the sort of handling the second highest volume, as you put it in the book, of banned drugs in the world. Um, Crazy, eye-opening, totally mind-blowing part of this story. So let's get there. But let's talk about <laughs> let's talk about the KLT. Um, so you, as you put it in the book, Japan held the KLT from 1905 to 1945. And again, we're in the context of Manchuria right now. Let's start off um, exploring this part of the story by talking about Dairen. By the 1920s, um, Dairen had the world's highest rate of narcotics consumption and second highest volume of trafficking after Shanghai. Wow. So to understand this, can you uh, kind of tell us a little bit about Dairen? Um, what do we need to know about this city? What do we need to know about Dairen as a place in order to understand its significance um, as the center of drug um, use and drug trafficking in this part of the story? Sure. So Dairen comes into Japanese possession after the Russo-Japanese War. Um, it was originally taken by Japan in the Sino-Japanese War, but then Japan had to return it thanks to the triple intervention and Russia subsequently leased it for itself. Um, and in following the Russo-Japanese War, Japan took it back. It was originally scheduled to go back to China in 1923, but then the lease was extended to 99 years. So um, the actual handover would have been quite recent if that schedule had been followed. Um, because Dairen was, uh, Dairen was initially important both to Japan and Russia as a warm water port, it doesn't freeze over in winter, which was a defining goal of Russian foreign policy during this time, but also made the city useful to Japan, not just as a transit point for drugs, but other commodities as well. Ultimately, it came to handle most of the port traffic of Northeast China uh, during the early 20th century. So it was useful in that sense. It was also a zone of very fragmented sovereignty because the KLT was not a formal colony and never became a formal colony and was never incorporated into Manchukuo. There were so many competing contenders for authority that it was easy for the drug trade to grow in the interstices and for various different competitors to become involved in the drug trade as a way of trying to establish supremacy. So initially, Dainan is not much of a city, but under Japanese control, there's a large migrant population from the home islands who settle there. Um, it also comes to host a lot of Chinese migrant laborers, particularly from Shandong and Hebei, who uh, are drawn there by the opportunity to work and so population growth is, is quite rapid during that time, but there's a great deal of transience, which I think also facilitates the consumption and encroachment of the drug economy. Now, in this part of the book, in this part of the story, you talk about the importance of the use of quantitative data as a means to not just know about, but also control KLT subjects and the environment. And this brings us to not only a really fascinating aspect of the story you're telling, but equally a fascinating aspect of the way you've chosen to tell it. So the, you bring us here into um, Statistical Gazetteers data, and this is part of a larger um, kind of methodological choice you've made here to blend more kind of a social sciences sorts of approaches to working with data to demographic history with this larger context of cultural and social um, and political history and the confluence of these at least two types of histories. This is one of the really beautiful things about the book and one of the ways that the book really makes profound contributions to both of these kinds of histories. So could you talk a little bit about your use of and treatment of data in the context of this book project? What did that involve for you? And how do you think about that um, in terms of the larger goals of the book and your methodology in the book? 
So in terms of data, the really important set that I had to work with was from the the Guangdong Statistical Gazetteer. And Japan, Japan's empire can, and I think has been quite appropriately described as an information empire, that the imperial administrators went with the idea that to know is to rule, and they wanted as much information as possible in order to be able to design the most effective, most fit, in social Darwinist terms, administration that they possibly could. Um, so it was... Uh, when I first started this project, what one of the ways that my attention was directed to Daiden, um, and the reason why it's it remains a really important epicenter of of the history that I ultimately came to write, is because it turned out that data on drugs was better there than any that was ever collected in the early 20th century world. Um, because narcotics are illegal, we, we even to this day don't have great data on it, but back in the early 20th century um, or before, most most states were not engaged in the process of either controlling or uh, collecting information on consumption or trafficking. So, the Guangdong Lease Territory was really anomalous in that respect. Uh, what became more clear to me as I started to look closely at this data is a couple of things. First of all, um, that it was not collected with the intention to be used, that um, indicators changed from year to year, which made uh, the construction of chronological data sets, really longitudinal data sets, really difficult, um, and that uh, sort of the, the categories weren't constant and ways of measuring weren't explicated. So this, this data was, um, I really struggled with how to make something interesting out of it. The second really interesting thing to come out of the data was that it really didn't support anything that the moral entrepreneurs were saying. Um, so moral entrepreneurs promoted this image of the paradigmatic addict as a Chinese coolie, um, and he required the benevolence of Japan, benevolent rule by Japan, in order to save him from social Darwinist elimination, that he was this degraded figure. But by looking at the data that Japanese statisticians themselves collected, uh, one of the most interesting and surprising findings that I came to was that actually most of the users of the of uh, particularly refined narcotics. Um, and I, I haven't mentioned this yet in the course of our conversation, but during the second moral panic, this really becomes a problem of refined narcotics, especially moral morphine and heroin rather than traditional smoking opium, as was the case during the 1890s moral crisis. Um, but most of the consumers ended up being Japanese. Um, and so that was another really surprising finding and made me wonder about how so the, the, the fact that data was collected to provide an illusion of legitimacy for the regime, but using it could destabilize the frameworks upon which legitimacy was predicated. That's fabulous. Thank you. And also, um, I'll mention for listeners, the kind of data work that you've done in your research for the book also has generated some really useful graphs um, that per- that punctuate elements of the, the narrative text and the prose text. So that's also really useful um, just from the perspective of a reader. Now, you've already mentioned um, just now the transformation from smoked to refined narcotics, and this went hand in hand with the transformation from smoking to injecting um, narcotics. And so this the importance of injection as a material practice um, is something that you talk about uh, at various points in this part of the book. You also talk in this part of the book, and I'll just mark this um, for readers, or for listeners rather, before we move on. Um, you talk about the element of Dairen that you mentioned very briefly already when you introduced the importance of Dairen as a place, and that is Dairen as a city of migrants. And you talk about opium being used as a kind of weapon of the weak um, in this context, which is another really, I think, interesting part of the story. So during the interwar period, um, the, this renewed moral crusade that you described in this part of the book provides a context for the emergence of an ideology of what you call not just benevolence, but benevolent government as a justification for empire. So can you talk a little bit about the idea of benevolent government as it shapes the kinds of phenomena that are happening around narcotics in this part of the book? Sure. 
So the idea of benevolence is, is quite deeply rooted in, in Japanese and East Asian philosophy. It, it comes out of the writings of Confucius, but it's fundamentally the idea that the state is responsible for its subjects and uh, it, its legitimacy depends on the fact that it's able to rule them well, um, that subjects owe an absolute loyalty and obedience in exchange for the greater knowledge and protection of the state. Um, so this is, this is uh, actually quite similar to the mission to civilize of the Western powers. Um, so these, these philosophies come to guide, I think, Japanese colonial and imperial philosophy during the interwar period. The idea that um, civilization, the civilization of the colonial subject is a project of benevolence and the way that the Japanese government legitimizes its rule over Northeast Asia. Um, and so the narcotic, the regulation of the narcotic economy uh, must look benevolent in order for it to be legitimate. So the ultimate end of all of these competing forces is to direct the discourses around the narcotic economy in a way that make regulation uh, seem benevolent. Uh, whether whether it can be so considered or not, but in in some instances it it becomes quite hypocritical. We've already talked a little bit about the establishment of the opium monopoly. That's meant to be, um, and during the second moral panic, the one we're talking about now as well, uh, the opium monopoly is meant to be an institution of benevolence. That Japan is carefully allowing narcotics users to wean themselves off opium slowly as a means of caring for their health, whereas it's really also deriving significant financial profit from the from allowing the narcotic economy to continue to flourish. Now, opium um, is also deeply implicated in racial politics in this context. And you talk about the importance of opium um, in this part of the book as a marker for racial differentiation that distinguished Chinese users from colonial subjects and specifically from Korean and Taiwanese colonial subjects. So can you talk a little bit about that part of the story? How um, does understanding the discourse of opium and opium use and opium regulation coming out of Japanese empire this context shed light on larger categories of racial differentiation that emerged from this? Sure. This was actually one of the hardest things to get a grip on because it evolved so much over time. Um, so what I came to realize in, in the course of working on this project was the Japanese were more or less, Japanese of the home islands were more or less absolutely associated in the imperial mindset with abstinence. Um, and because abstinence was a marker of difference with China, the Chinese were absolutely associated with addiction. But between those poles, Japan also was constructing an empire of subjects who were theoretically supposed to be assimilating doka, moving towards uh, a more Japanese identity and subjecthood. So as they were thought to progress along that continuum, they also were thought to move from addiction to abstinence. So when Koreans and Taiwanese were colonized, um, the idea was that they would shed their participation in an opium consumer identity and uh, sort of take on more Japanese quality of, of abstinence. But it becomes quite interesting uh, for a number of reasons. First of all, colonial subjects embraced a lot of this rhetoric as well. Um, the, one, of, one of the sort of hegemonizing features of empire is the Japanese imperial success in spreading these ideas among colonial subjects. The idea that that opium consumption or, or narcotics consumption uh, would lead to their social Darwinist elimination. So many of many colonial subjects or um, Chinese, Taiwanese, Koreans and others were actually very active as moral entrepreneurs in the Japanese empire as well. Another really interesting thing I found is, is that there's a very spatial element to this um, that came out most cleanly in the case of the Koreans who were the most mobile subjects in Japan's empire. So 
Koreans in Korea were seen as steadily assimilating towards a Japanese identity, um, but Koreans in Manchuria were valued as Japanese partners in imperialism. They were legally Japanese citizens and uh, could fulfill a lot of the tasks of the empire that the Japanese didn't want to do. So whereas Koreans in Korea were seen as gradually taking on an abstinent subjecthood, Koreans in Manchuria were presented as being already there. And it's ironic because Korean consumption of narcotics in Manchuria was, uh, relatively speaking, much higher. And then Koreans who migrated to Japan, there were about 2 million during the imperial age, were differentiated from the Japanese. They were Japan's most salient other in the home islands. And so they were represented as drug users um, in the same kind of virulent language that was used, that was applied to the Chinese. So in 1931, at the height of this moral crusade against narcotics, money from the opium trade that we've been talking about actually financed Japanese military takeover of Manchuria. Now, there's a discourse that emerges out of this that's really, uh, really, really interesting, um, in which Japan is accused of drugging China into submission and using Manchukuo as a kind of narco state. Um, so that's a really, really interesting, at least for me, part of this story, just thinking about Manchuria as a narco state in that context, I think really opens up um, a very different perspective onto the global history of drug trafficking, of narcotics. Um, and so I just want to mark that for listeners. Now, in fact, during the interwar years, the KLT, as we've been talking about, as you show in the book, was actually a really important space for the continuing moral crusade against narcotics. And when, as you bring us further into this story, you bring us into um, the a context in which we see merchants um, being focused on and being a really important part of the story as they become, as you put it here, entrepreneurs of morality. So can you talk about merchants? Because they've, they've come up before in the course of our conversation. You mentioned them at the beginning. Um, they're really fascinating here. So what do we need to understand about merchants as entrepreneurs of morality in order to understand the larger arguments that this part of the book is making? Sure. Um, the application of uh, the, the label of moral entrepreneurs to merchants is, is something that came to me rather late in the process. So um, it's, it's kind of interesting in, in that way. Um, most, most scholars of moral panic have not usually considered merchants as, as architects of morality in, in that sense. So Within this second crisis of, of moral moral crusade against narcotics that takes place in the High Imperial Age from the from the end of World War One to the end of, of World War Two, the importance of merchants becomes, I think, increasingly defined in in articulating in identifying the regulation of the narcotics market with benevolent government. So merchants are the legal purveyors of opium throughout the Japanese empire. And because there is this opium monopoly or um, precursors to it, uh, the state, uh, thanks to the, the strategy of gradual suppression, which was widely adopted, um, there is this role for opium to be benevolently sold and the state needs agents to do it. What happens is because these individuals have so much financial power, the state is quite active in working with them. So one thing that I try to do in this chapter is uh, look a little bit more closely at actual individuals uh, who were important in regulating the narcotic economy. So it's, again, focused on the Guangdong Lease territory, but the initial Initially, Japan considered adopting an opium monopoly in the KLT along the lines of what took place in Taiwan. But ultimately, it was decided that the market was too small, the population was infinitesimal, and the expense would be too great. So basically, the opium economy was farmed out. It's called a revenue farm. Um, was farmed out to individuals who then um, were able to sell opium and simply paid taxes on it to the government. 
But over time, oh, sorry. No, 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 go on. Oh, sure. But over time, uh, this sort of strategy, which was adopted by the Western powers and their colonies throughout Asia and Southeast Asia as well, this strategy came to seem, uh, was stigmatized by the Western powers as not being benevolent or not civilizing the local population. So Japan had to discard it and replace it with an opium monopoly. And this uh, monopoly strategy is also adopted in Manchukuo, um, where the sort of lines between merchants and lawbreakers are entirely based on who has a license from the government, but the conduct ends up looking very similar. I'm sorry for interrupting you before. Um, I, want, I, I was just very struck because you talk about, you, you were just talking about the importance of a shift to focusing on individuals. And I'm wondering if any of the individuals that you talked about um, in that context particularly strike you as being especially worthy of, of note um, in terms of bringing them to the attention of listeners. So in other words, did, were you particularly fascinated with any of those individuals specifically that you'd like to share with us? So one thing that struck me was that the collective biography is is quite similar in all cases. The revenue farmers, the monopoly agents, um, most of them sort of founded their careers on military contacts. They were unable to find positions in the Japanese home islands. It would be fair to describe them as taikuroni, continental adventurers, who came to China because there was really no place for them in the metropolitan economy. Um, and then, depending on when they arrived and when they when they set up their businesses in the Guangdong Lease territory, it was legal or not legal. So essentially, you have these very similar individuals, Chinese as well as Japanese, who are able to avoid prosecution or get caught up in it, doing the same activities, um, but some of them are sanctioned by the state and some of them are not. Mm-hmm. Right. So as you move um, to this part of the book also, you open up another element of the story for us that's also really interesting that we haven't talked about um, in too much detail up to now, and that's the aspect of law enforcement. So the Japanese government develops a system of law enforcement to deal with the problem of illicit dealers, of sort of um, black market dealers in the KLT, but you show in this part of the book that over time, the dealers and the people who are supposedly meant to be controlling them develop a kind of symbiotic relationship, and law enforcement actually allows the drug market to flourish. So let's talk about um, these sorts of offenses. How were legal or how were drug offenses conceived in this part of the story as punishable offenses? And and what kinds of punishments did um, addicts who were punished under these contexts uh, suffering? And you you mentioned also the importance of differential prosecution according to racial categories. So maybe we can um, speak to that a little bit if you don't mind. Sure. So the chapter on law enforcement really looks at how the state creates a a regime that it constructs as benevolent to prosecute the black market. And the black market was particularly robust in the KLT in Manchuria because it, the state didn't, in contrast to Taiwan, um, the state did not underprice its monopoly opium relative to the black market. Uh, So there was very little incentive for opium users to buy from the state, uh, which gave rise to a very large parallel black market that created a lot of opportunities for other people to participate. Um, And it was very much a cross-national collaboration. Uh, I talk about how Japanese uh, sort of operated consistently at the upper end of the traffic as importers and so forth. And then Koreans were often distributors and uh, Chinese were petty distributors and users. And there were a lot of cross-national partnerships with Western agents uh, who were active during this time as well. So the challenge of the state was to come up with a regime of prosecuting or sort of of treating these offenses that was legitimate. And benevolence was an ideology that didn't aim for equality, but sought to, was very race conscious in the sense that it sought to meet out treatment to the lawbreaker based on race. So the challenge was to construct a 
a judicial system that was extremely race conscious, but preserved stability in the black drug market, um, which was funneling so much money to the to the army and so forth. Um, so I look at the sort of three levels that narcotics offenders encountered the state, uh, policing, prosecution, and punishment. Um, so the state basically led, left the black market to grow on its own because it created a pretext to bring in more police who were ultimately important in fighting alongside the Guangdong army to subjugate the entirety of Manchuria. Um, then in terms of prosecution, it was... Um, sort of a foregone conclusion that the state would convict you because the benevolent state always had superior knowledge. Um, it couldn't blunder in bringing you to justice. So with conviction more or less a foregone conclusion, I, I think over 95% of the cases that I had data on were convictions. But with conviction a foregone conclusion, uh, what the lawbreaker was really interested in was soliciting benevolence or um, basically mercy from the state. And that took different forms depending on your race. Uh, so for Japanese offenders, um, most of the prison population in the Guangdong Least Territory was Japanese because it was seen as a way of civilizing the offender, of restoring him uh, as a penitent to the national community. And then for Koreans uh, who were um, sort of aligned with the Japanese in Manchuria, often the strategy was to resettle them, uh, particularly in the 1930s when they were farmed out to various agricultural colonies throughout the Manchurian hinterland as a way of subduing it. And for Chinese, um, it was thought that they were incapable of civilization, and so the best justice was flogging. Thank you. Thank you, Miriam. Now, as we move um, into uh, the sort of later chapters of the book, we move into a part of the story that's of deep interest, um, I think, and it's going to be of deep relevance to anybody interested in the history of science and medicine. So you, you're looking at the history of science here, both in terms of the production of drugs and in terms of the control of drugs and drug use. You show here in this part of the book, among other things, that to meet the legal, de- the legal here demand for refined narcotics, Japan actually sends chemists abroad to learn how to make opium alkaloids. So this is a really fascinating Breaking Bad part of the story. <laughs> um, so for me, I was, I was very interested in that. Now, by the late 1920s, as a result, Imperial Japan actually becomes the world's leading exporter of heroin and a significant global producer of morphine and cocaine. Okay, so another really interesting part of this story. But you also take us into laboratory contexts um, that look more closely at efforts to study, understand, and control addiction as a result of this drug use. And this is what I'd like to ask you to talk a little bit about um, in a, in a mo- moment or so. So you show um, in, your st- in a study of how addiction is researched and treated, actually, as a scientific and medical problem here, you show that there was actually a series of world-class laboratories and research facilities um, that was established as Japan becomes really, really important um, in global studies of addiction science. So can you talk about that part of the story, um, the place of Japan here in the in the context of global addiction science and what was happening um, in these laboratories and research facilities. Sure. So the, during the early 20th century, um, Japan really becomes one of the leading scientific producers of knowledge about opium and addiction. I think one sort of this, this is a conversation about legitimacy and this is a way for scientific researchers and, and medical researchers to uh to carve out a role within the state of um, sort of legitimizing Japan as an empire and as a nation by producing world-class scientific knowledge on par with the Western powers. Um, And it's also a way of demonstrating benevolence to colonial subjects, so legitimacy at home as well as abroad, uh, by looking into ways that can resolve addiction. So this as a scientific topic, offers a lot to, to doctors and, and to the state. Another reason why 
addiction becomes uh, such a robust area of inquiry in Japanese laboratories during this time is because it's a it's such a it's a local problem, which gives Japan an advantage in researching it vis-a-vis the Western powers. It's um, not coming later to the conversation and it has quite good access to addicts um, or drug users. So the the sort of initial drive is to use um, what I've represented as colonial medicine as a justification of empire. And I would say that Japan, to a greater extent than any of the Western empires, really attaches itself to colonial medicine as a justification of imperialism um, and brings not just uh, world-class Japanese doctors to Manchuria to research addiction, but also gradually comes to incorporate colonial subjects in this project as well. So there's a lot of cross-national scientific collaboration going on in an effort to resolve this problem. Initially, the quest to learn about and cure addiction is um, very much a way of justifying Japanese imperialism, but after the formation of Manchukuo, what happens is is Japanese scientists become very disconnected from the Western world, um, and scientific collaboration, as collaboration in in most endeavors during this time, really ebbs. Um, And so they turn to the empire for colleagues, and the conversation, the scientific conversation about addiction becomes interwoven into the effort to justify the state of Manchukuo as this cooperation among the races, among the five races. So they bring uh, Korean and Chinese scientific participants into this, into the laboratories. Now you show, um, and also in this part of the book, um, that the first scientific, the first scientific medical addiction clinic in the world is established um, in this time, and it brings us back into Dairen. So, can you speak just briefly to what's happening in um, addiction clinics in this context in Japan? What kinds of, um, what do we need to know about the kinds of practices that are happening there to understand um, the larger argument you're making in this part of the book? So um, the division between between laboratories and, and clinics is, is to some extent artificial. Research was very much the duty of every Japanese doctor, um, and research took place in the clinics as well. In um, Dayan was the first the location of the first scientific medical opium addiction clinic in the world, by which I mean the first addiction treatment center where research was carried out, where there was an effort to find a new cure rather than simply applying existing knowledge. And um, Western-style scientific medicine was used to pursue this. So every patient who came through the door was also an experimental subject, and there was a great deal of data collected about them. And the addiction treatment clinic in Dainan became a model for the establishment of similar facilities throughout the Japanese empire and the world. Um, we see the rise of addiction treatment clinics throughout the European empires and in the United States as well um, during this time, um, all with reference and in contact with the original facility in Dayan. So this, this very much is, is part of a global wave. But again, the clinic uh, is both a way of showing Japan's prowess in terms of scientific knowledge and medical treatment before the world and also a way of demonstrating benevolence to imperial subjects by uh, adopting this medical strategy to treat a problem. So Miriam, I can't let you go in good conscience without asking you to talk just a little bit about <laughs> the third the third of the three moral crises. So you show um, in, in the um, last parts of the book how for almost seven years after the war, Japan is occupied. They're occupied by the U.S. um, and its allies. And upon the restoration of sovereignty, there's a kind of crisis of legitimacy, right? And and you take us through the consequences of this. Now, this is a context in which we see this third major moral crisis. And this is the moral crisis in which, as you described at the very beginning of our conversation, mass society becomes a kind of moral entrepreneur. This is a crisis in which a spike in um, narcotics consumption starts taking a different kind of form. We move here from a story about opium to a story about methamphetamine. 
It's a super fascinating transition and part of this story. You talk about this as, um, or in the context of a discussion of the Hiropon Age. This lasts um, from about 1952 to 1956, and this is a context in which hundreds of thousands of people are manufacturing and selling methamphetamine. Roughly two million Japanese are using the drug regularly, and this um, presents a different kind of a moral crisis. Now, in contrast to the treatment of of opium, which we saw throughout the book being consistently defined as a problem of the other, capital O, Hiropon uh, was treated as really a Japanese issue, a, a really a domestic drug crisis. And the addict, as you're showing here, is transformed from a racial other, capital O, to self, capital S. Um, so can you speak a little bit to that? Um, what, what do we need to understand about this Hiropon crisis? And can you talk a little bit about this kind of domestic of of the addict figure in the context of the use of methamphetamine and the production thereof. Sure. So this is um, Japan's first real moral panic over drugs, and it's um, in some ways more visceral, just because it it does affect the home islands rather than the vanished empire. One sort of important feature that I think the post-war historiography has overlooked a little bit is um, that the occupation was certainly a rupture and a moment of transition. But the restoration of sovereignty in Japan was also an incredibly fraught moment that uh, created a new crisis of sovereignty. Japan had many tasks at this time uh, to differentiate itself uh, from what had come before to avoid becoming a U.S. puppet. Um, and to restore agency to the population, which was represented as having had none during the era of quote-unquote fascism and war. Um, and so uh, in the context of this crisis of legitimacy, once again, a, a panic breaks out over the issue of narcotics. And this time it's methamphetamine. Um, there were stockpiles of methamphetamine throughout the world, in fact, um, the U.S. And, and the Axis powers uh, distributed this drug as well. It wasn't um, the health risks were not as well understood as today, um, and it wasn't necessarily controlled. But um, the the there are stocks of methamphetamine that are released among the population, and then there becomes uh, there is a demand created that is satisfied by popular manufacture and participation, and it takes place from about 1952, the year in which Japan regained sovereignty, through 1956 when it was brought under control, and I would represent this as an opportunity for the Japanese public to um, demonstrate to restore agency to itself by participating in this anti-narcotics campaign. So we see a lot of activism by groups that really haven't been active before, like, for example, mothers associations and um, psychiatrists who were largely absent from the medical conversation beforehand, as, as well as traditional actors like law enforcement and so forth. Um, and this is this is the world's first methamphetamine crisis, methamphetamine outbreak, um, and it's certainly Japan's first domestic drug experience uh, on a wide scale. And in the process of bringing it under control, Japan restores its identity as an abstinent nation and thereby its sovereign legitimacy. So, Miriam, I would love to keep you for another two hours <laughs> because there is that much more in the book that we could talk about. I mean, it's a, it's a really extraordinarily rich study, and we've really just talked about um, moments or elements within a much larger narrative that you've given us here. Because we don't have another two hours, though, um, is there anything else in particular about the book that we didn't have a chance to talk about, but that you'd like to mention, and um, perhaps especially uh, for the sake of listeners who haven't yet had a chance to read it? Well, I guess um, quite rightly, we haven't really talked about the historiographical context of the book, but um, I guess I'd like to acknowledge that um, I gained a lot from this sort of burgeoning wave of scholarship that's coming out recently on drugs in Asia and, and particularly Northeast Asia. Um, I guess I would uh, be thinking of Frank Decoder's book on narcotics in China and Mark Driscoll recently uh, produced uh, a study as well, um, Norman Smith. And, and so I have... Um, been glad to situate myself in that conversation as well as sort of on the larger historiography of the Japanese empire. 
so now that the book is out, congratulations, as I think it's <laughs> abundantly clear, it's a fabulous book and fabulous, not just in terms of the narrative that it's telling, but in terms of the reach, um, I think potentially of the narrative to multiple different disciplinary contexts that it informs. So now that it's done, um, what's next for you? Are there any projects that are currently inspiring you and what can we hope to read um, in the future? <laughs> Um, I've uh, moved away from drugs. Uh, my current project is on the history of Japanese anthropology and archaeology in the 20th century. Um, and I'm interested in, in the history of social science as, as a way of looking at how Japan framed its evolving national identity um, during these various contexts from about the 30s through the 70s. So imperialism, war, occupation, and then independence again. Um, and I'm doing it through the lens of one anthropologist who was particularly influential, not just in Japan, but globally. Um, he founded the Toldai Cultural Anthropology Department, um, and he was raised in colonial Korea. He did studies on behalf of the Japanese military in New Guinea and um, the larger region of Northeast Asia during World War II. Um, and then he was repatriated and worked on various projects in the home islands. Uh, he created Japan's first ethnology museum. He wrote um, several encyclopedias for the public. He was a real public intellectual. And then he was Japan's first scholar to study the diaspora. He was posted to Brazil in the 1950s um, to look at the largest emigrant population there. And um, in the final phase of his career, he retrained at Harvard as an archaeologist and uh, studied the Andean civilization in Peru. Um, so through his career, I'm looking at the different ways that Japan interacted with um, wider global social science, as well as um, the other, again, with a capital O, um, as a means of understanding his larger generational cohort and, and their accommodations with changing political circumstances. Well, best of luck with that project. Um, I'm sure we will be talking again <laughs> at some point <laughs> in the so. future. And thank you very much, Miriam, for making the time. It's a fabulous book, and it's really been a pleasure to talk with you about it. So thank you. Thank you so much. You've been listening to New Books in East Asian Studies. Thanks very much for joining us, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>